Hello to our listeners and welcome to TNT ESQ. Along with my co-host, Reese Thomas, I'm Teresa Quinlan. We make up TNT. For those of you that don't know, it's our name, Thomas and Teresa. We're here to explode the status quo, because this series is all about talking with people who are helping us to think differently, so we can start doing differently. Our guest today is Dr. Melissa Hughes. She is a self-proclaimed neuroscience geek, author, and speaker. Having spent the first decade of her professional career in education, observing how the brain works through the lives of her students, she realized there were simple, applicable tools that could optimize performance outcomes and improve their overall learning processes. Understanding how to learn, how to solve problems, and to think creatively becomes even more important once we leave the classroom and step into the work-life arena. Dr. Hughes combines her experience in education with extensive research in neuroscience, behavioral psychology, to share simple, applicable strategies that improve performance and outcomes in our professional and personal lives. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you so much. I have been looking forward to this. Oh, us too. Yes, absolutely. So we all know what your obsession is. Tell us how you became this neuroscience geek. Give us a little bit of a background to your story. So we can all join you on your journey. And my journey began in a in an elementary classroom, and I was teaching fourth grade. And I was the teacher who was going to change the world one child at a time, and every other teacher cliche you can think of. Uh, But I was that teacher, and I really wanted to reach kids. And I had some kids who really struggled. And at the end of my first year, I remember sitting with my mentor we did a post-mortem of that first year, like what really worked well, what do you want to work on this summer? What do you want to get better at? And my question was, I just don't understand how I am supposed to teach kids how to learn if I don't understand how the brain works, because that is the very tool that kids use to learn. And at that time we were engaged in high stakes standardized testing and we were gearing our kids up for these these super important tests and we were telling them to have a good breakfast and get the, a good night's sleep and do all of these things so they could do the very best. At the end of the day, the kids were just terrified to go in there and not, not do great on this test they were taking as a 10-year-old kid. And what I've learned since then is that what we did to those kids and what we often do to ourselves, even as grown-ups is we expect the brain to work under conditions that it simply is not capable of doing. And so in that case with my kids, I know that the prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain that we want our kids to hang out in all the time. That's the part that manages impulse control and decision-making and weighs risks and rewards and consequences. And, but it also takes care of problem solving And when we are all stressed out, that part of the brain is just not in charge. The survival part of the brain is in charge. That happens because of this evolutionary development that has happened over millions of years, and it's how we have survived extinction, and we have made it safe to live another day. That said, need to learn how to manage that stress and understand what's happening between our ears so that we can make our brain work better so that we can maximize our brain 
and, and just get the optimum output out of that thing. And I think the more that I talk to people, the more I realize everybody wants to know how to make their brain work better. Everyone wants their brain to work better sometimes because they want to be smarter. Right. Although the outcome of your brain working better isn't just that you get smarter. Oh, sure. That's true. I mean, there's so much going on in our subconscious. So more than 90% of our cognitive processes happen in our subconscious and we're not even aware of them. So things like cognitive biases that impact the way we communicate with others, the way we walk into a a team meeting and interact with our colleagues. It's, I think there are like 300 cognitive biases now that we know about. It's crazy. And these are all of the things that shape our mental models of the world. I talk to people about cognitive biases and they say, well, if it happens in the subconscious, then how can I actually mm-hmm. control that? And there are things that we aren't going to control completely, but it's incredible and it is fascinating when you start to understand what some of these biases are you start to notice them in your own thinking i mean i do it myself i think to myself oh my gosh there was fundamental attribution error right there at work and and i catch myself afterwards so you can't always you can't always stop it from happening but you can identify it when it happens and then kind of self-correct and I just think that's cool. I mean, that is knowledge is power. Like anybody that watched Schoolhouse Rocks, that whole knowledge is power thing is. <laughs> Can you peel away the layers in a minute? Because I would love to actually know with your fourth grade class and your postmortem after that first year and then learning more about the brain, what did you start doing differently as a teacher? Well, as a teacher, before I went into the classroom, you know, we were taught theories and methods and instructional strategies and all of that stuff. You know, part of what we learned was you create this warm and welcoming learning environment. And the way it was presented was like, well, because we want kids to be happy at school. We want kids to enjoy learning and kids who enjoy learning are going to learn better. And that is in fact true. But what we also know is this construct now of psychological safety and the brain simply cannot function fully if it is in a state of psychological discomfort so if you think about maslow's hierarchy of needs not to get too deep in the weeds of all of this stuff but maslow's hierarchy of needs starts with you know you can't get to belonging and self-esteem and self-actualization if you're worried about your basic needs if you're worried about food shelter clothing, physically being safe. If you think about all of the kids today who are homeless or living in shelters, have conversations with teachers who say, gosh, if I could only get my kids to do their homework. Mm. Well, some of your kids, look at the statistics. I mean, some of your kids are in shelters. Some of your kids are living in a car. So to them, doing homework is not, I don't even know that it makes the top 10 on the list of priorities. Mm But, but more than that, they're simply, their brain is not at the place of psychological safety where doing that homework task even matters. Mm-hmm. And adults, grownups are the same way. So picture you have a, we'll use the terrible boss story because everybody has a horrible mm-hmm. boss experience. Everybody's got that story of that boss who just you can't do anything right, or he's hounding you, or he's a micromanager. What happens is your brain is not in a state of psychological safety. 
-hmm. And so the innovation, the problem solving, you know, all of the, all of the best thinking that you want to be able to do, not just for your boss, but also for your colleagues and for yourself, because I believe everybody wants to go to work and make a contribution to that organization. Hell yeah. So if you are not in a state of psychological safety, your brain is not optimi- uh, is not fully functional. It is not operating you know, to its maximum capacity. And so when I talk to leaders who say, it's not my job to make my people happy, you know, maybe not, but if you make them safe, then they will be happy. And if they are happy, then they will deliver more. The ROI is just crazy. And, and part of that is belonging to a team, right? Feeling like you belong and that your voice can be heard and that your ideas are accepted. And um, in the classroom, we talk about creating a risk-free environment so that we allow kids to make mistakes. Because when they're five, we tell them, mistakes are really good. We learn from our mistakes. That's where our best learning is. And then as adults, we don't want anybody to know about our mistakes. That's just no way. Like you, and, and the, you know, it's so true because if you say, if in your organization says, Hey, let's embrace our mistakes and I make a mistake and I share it with 25 people, then the chances of those 25 people making the same mistake that I did just went down like exponentially, but we don't share that because, because we have egos and because we have inhibitions and because when we're about 11, 10, 12 years old, we learn what judgment feels like mm-hmm. and we don't like that. Definitely. Can we get a little bit deeper into the neuroscience here when we're talking about the psychological safety? So what exactly is happening in the brain itself from a sort of chemical point of view when I feel in a safe position or opposed to I don't feel safe? So the differences between the parasympathetic nervous system and the sympathetic nervous system. So when everything is okay, I guess the layman's term is when we're in a kind of a rest and and relaxed state, the brain is pumping out good chemicals like serotonin and dopamine and oxytocin. Neuroscience 101 for neurotransmitters, because I am not ashamed to say that I love talking about neurotransmitters. So I'm going to share this. Dopamine is kind of that I did it drug. That is that reward and pleasure. It's the also the addiction drug. So we produce dopamine, not when we get a reward, but in anticipation of a reward. And so it is dopamine that pushes us to either go get something we want or avoid something we don't. So dopamine is really important. Serotonin is kind of that everything is right with the world. It's the very, it's the Zen chemical, right? It makes us feel very calm and satisfied with life. And then oxytocin is my favorite because oxytocin is the love drug and we get oxytocin when we have sex. Um, And the biggest surge of oxytocin happens when a mother breastfeeds her child. But we also get oxytocin with platonic hugs or platonic touches or just when we feel like we belong to a tribe. So if you feel like you are part of a team and whatever that team is, if it's your work team or if it's the PTA at school or if it's the community bridge club, that sense of belonging is we're wired to connect with other people. And that's really important. So you can't get to psychological safety without first having your basic, just basic human needs met. 
But then once those are met, then you can step up to the third row of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and that is belonging. And that is that sense of psychological safety. I'm okay. I'm accepted. I've got my people. And if I fall down, one of my people will pick me back up. Daniel Pink uh, wrote a book called Drive, and it's all about getting to the internal motivators, right? That people will just sort of go at it autonomously. And while he doesn't sort of dive into the hormones, he certainly does reference in his way all of these things that you were talking about, that the foundations for an individual's basic needs must be met. In the workplace, he talks about that as you have to pay people what they're worth and get that off the table. Because if you aren't doing that, then people will place all of their sort of frustration, anger, I'm not safe, I don't feel safe, I'm not taking care, uh, taking care of, I can't take care of my basic needs because this is on the table. Absolutely. And so they can't access all this other creativity, innovation, whatever, because that's lacking for me. What I find is interesting is each workplace has to know what are their psychological safety foundations. But what I hear you saying is that for most people, they're pretty much the same. Well, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs is pretty much is, is the same for everybody. I mean, those, those are human needs. But to your point, every organization does have its own structure in place. And the culture is defined by the norms of the people who work there. Mm -hmm. So the leadership can say, this is the culture of our company. The people who work there define the culture of the company. And I love that you brought up Daniel Pink. I love him. I actually have a little bit of a girl crush on him. I will be honest. And also Dan Ariely is another one who talks about, you know, these are these things that influence human motivation. And he talks a lot about things that drive employees to really contribute to the organization. And he's done a lot of work on, you know, what motivates employees? Is it money? Is it Frisbee Fridays? Is it all you can eat cereal bar in the break room? Like, what is it? And you look at companies like Google that have all of those things, right? What he found is that the simplest things motivate all of us, no matter what the organizational structure is, no matter what industry you're in. I've done some work with uh, the hospitality industry, which basically has the worst turnover rate of all the industries. And it's crazy when you think of how much money they have to spend to train. And the hospitality industry is all about hospitality, making their guests feel welcome, making their guests feel safe, making their guests feel appreciated. You know, when you go in and I, I talk to these folks in the hospitality industry and I say, guess what? If you make your people feel safe and if you make your people feel welcome and if you make your people feel appreciated, then they're going to make your guests feel that way because those are the most basic, most powerful human motivators. Interesting that you have that example with hospitality because, you know, lots, lots of us have probably worked in that sector, but in the same story is that, you know, they give so much of themselves for their guests that they're, they're, you know, almost literally empty. They, they don't have the energy or whatever you want to call it to take the time to care about themselves, let alone the next person or, you know, their managers even. So how as leaders can we counteract that? Yeah, so um, I am finishing an ebook, which will be free for the download to anyone who has the link. I'll share that with you. 
so that you can share that with the listeners. But it is all about gratitude at work in the workplace and what it does to us neurologically, then what that does to us as individuals and then collectively, because we know emotional contagion and mirror neurons allow us to pass our emotions on to other people. So I'll give you a really great example. If you walk into a conference room, you just had a terrible meeting with your boss and you're frustrated and you're upset and you walk into a conference room to meet with your team and they have nothing to do with that meeting you were just in, but you have this look on your face of doom and gloom. You have just set that meeting up for abysmal failure. You might as well just cancel the meeting and walk right back out because in within one minute, your employees in that room are going to be generating the same kind of stress hormones that are in your brain. And I think one of the things that is really helpful is when you know that, when you know, because I talk to people and they say, well, I didn't go in there to yell at them. I mean, I went in there and we started the meeting, but you didn't even have to say anything because so much of our communication is nonverbal. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing. The second thing is look for one person every day to extend a sincere expression of gratitude to mm -hmm. every single day. And what that does is not only are you going to make people feel like what they do really matters and that their work is valuable and that their contribution to the team is valuable. But the other thing you do is you kind of put your brain in the market of seeing the good stuff. Mm -hmm. We're so focused on, in most organizations, most organ, I mean, unless you're in real trouble, unless you're on the verge of shutting your doors, in most organizations, there's a lot of good stuff happening. Like 85 to 90% of the stuff you're doing is really working, right? You probably wouldn't be in business. Yeah. But we tend to focus on that 10% that isn't working. And that's another cognitive bias at work. That's the negativity bias. And again, that's what has enabled us to survive extinction because we pay attention to the bad stuff. But if you shift your focus and you say, every day, I'm going to catch one person being good. I'm going to catch one person doing something amazing. And I'm either going to write a note or I'm going to just make it a point to stop and say something. I really appreciated the way you made those customers feel so special. You are going to put your own brain in a place where you're focusing on the positive stuff. And it's really kind of crazy when you're in the market for something, that's what you tend to see. So think about when you're going to buy a car and you think, I'm going to go buy that little red sports car and go to the dealership and you drive the little red sports car and then you go home. And in the next week, you see that little red sports car everywhere. It's everywhere. And it's not that there are more cars, little red sports cars on the road that particular week. But what happened is you activate, it's the reticular activation system at work in your brain. And it's the brain's bouncer. You know, the bouncer says, this is an important thing for you right now. And so I'm going to let that piece of stimuli come in because we are bombarded with all of this data and all of the stimuli around. So when there's one piece of information sitting out there that can maybe help us with that thing that we're trying to figure out, then the brain lets it in. You know, the same is true for gratitude. If you are in the market of those people around you that are just really working hard and making a difference for your organization or for the team, 
and you start to look for them, then you're going to see more of the good stuff, which just feels good, and emotional contagion, they're going to pass it on. They're going to pass that good serotonin, dopamine, oxytocin cocktail. You're going to serve that up every single day, and you can't beat that with a stick. There is a childhood story that I used to read to my son. We would read it quite frequently, and it was called Helpful is Your Bucket, and I have a leadership book with the almost the exact same name helpful is your bucket it's all about people carry around these invisible buckets and generally most people will start with a full bucket and this is what we're expressing right here is how they feel about themselves right exactly. their self-esteem their level of capacity for connection for empathy for kindness for joy happiness all of those kinds of things right and we have the capacity to help fill other people's buckets but the great thing, and what you're mentioning is, when we do an action that fills someone else's, we automatically fill our own. So it has this double whammy impact. And then we also know that bystanders watching capture that into their own bucket as well. They don't even need to be part of the interaction. So this capacity for us to live within a state of abundance, of looking at all of the great things and putting it out there, whether we're manifesting it in our thoughts and then saying it out loud so it becomes part of our reality. We make focused intention in the workplace to do things like kindness initiatives. If we need to force feed it to people, we can. There are lots of ways of helping people to get out of the empathy distress they might be in and into empathy as part of this is how we behave. The most general assumptions we can give to people we give to them it feels so much better to do that because at the core if I am a good person then that probably means they're a good person tap into the core the goodness that's on the inside once we do that we have this abundance messaging and all of a sudden in EQ we call that our interpersonal relationships so all of a sudden we are webbed so much strongly together and together I mean, how many acronyms do we need for team? <laughs> we over I, all of these great things that, you know, bookshelves are filled with right now. How do we do it? How do we do it? How do we do it? Probably one thing that is in all of them is something around gratitude. Absolutely. God, you said so many things there. My, my little brain is just spinning like a top. So um, one thing that you said was about, first of all, I love the book, How Full Is Your Bucket? And for those of your listeners who have not read it, I say start with the children's book because I think every adult should read a children's book every single day. Lots of life lessons there. But also the adult book, it just makes so much sense. I, don't, I have not talked to a single person who has read that book who hasn't said, oh my gosh, yes. I, I just immediately, light bulbs were going off. The other thing you said was something about em em empathy fatigue. There's another thing called compassion fatigue. Mm. We have lots of dark things. And to say to somebody, oh, you need to not stress so much. You need to not worry so much. That's really bad for your brain. That never works out when you tell somebody who's stressed and worried, just don't stress, don't worry. Because really what you're doing is invalidating their feelings. But we do get to this place where the brain kind of hits the brakes and says, I can't, I can't take anymore. We see it in nurses. We see it in teachers. We see it in ER workers. It happens. And it's, it's kind of the brain's built-in way to say, enough, I can't take anymore. And so I, I think that the other thing about gratitude that it does is it says, I don't have to constantly, even if you do that for your job, even if all you see is 
the worst of the people around you. But if they intentionally, you use the word intentional focus. And I love that because if you, if you intentionally force yourself to find something good in the world around you somewhere, then you actually alleviate that tendency to go into compassion fatigue. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. Now, when we first spoke, you talked to us about neuroscience and imposter syndrome. It's something that you've been working on a lot at the moment. And I wanted to invite you to maybe tell us a little bit about what you've been working on. Yes, I'm so excited because I will be delivering my experience with imposter syndrome in a TEDx talk at Wabash College. And I am super, super excited about that. And in my research, what I found is that I am not alone as as special as I'd like to think that I am, and I am in many ways, I am not in this way because more than 70% of us experience this crisis of confidence at some point. It's interesting because when I have these conversations with people about imposter syndrome, they immediately jump to a lack of confidence. Mm-hmm. And it's absolutely not that. It's actually, it's more most prevalent among very driven, successful people, people who set their standards very high. And it's not that they can't, they can't achieve that goal. It's the opposite. It's when they achieve that goal, then they diminish the goal. You set this big goal and you work hard, work hard, work hard, pedal faster and harder, and you finally get there. And then when you get there, you go, well, that wasn't a big deal anyway, or anybody could have done this, or the excuses that we make to ourselves, we minimize that accomplishment. And it really doesn't matter how much you've achieved. You focus on that achievement being less than what it really is. More than 70% of us experience it. It's really prevalent among females. But what we're finding now is that it's it's males, it's females, it's managers, it's CEO. It's the guy who's working at the drive-thru lane at Taco Bell, and it's chief marketing officer of it happens no matter where we are because it is it is a mit- mismatch between the way we see ourselves and the way we think the world sees us. There are a couple things that have contributed to it over the last 10 years or so. And one thing is the rise of social media. We put out in social media this snapshot, a very polished snapshot of ourselves with filters and backgrounds and we can take the photo over and over and over again until we get just the perfect one we want. And then we put it out there and we watch to see how many people like it or share it or comment on it. And that means something to us. That is social status is important to us. And we all know that everybody can take 27 selfies before they post that one and they post that one and they, oh, I'm just gonna throw this up here real quick. No, it was probably a two hour process, right? I mean, And we know that to be true, but we are only able to see our 27 do-overs. We see ours, but we only see one, everybody else out there. So there's this perception that everyone else is this polished thing and we see all of our bloopers. We see our blooper reel running continuously on the split screen in our brains. And we're seeing everybody else's highlight reel because that's what they're putting out on social media. The other piece of this is ghosting. Ghosting is this like ridiculously horrible trend right now and how people communicate and it's because we can communicate so easily with our devices. 
the brain does not know the difference between social pain and physical pain. There's also an effect, it's called the Ziegernick effect. And it is this tendency in our brain to want to see the end of something. We do not like things left undone. We don't like leaving something out there hanging, like a relationship or even a project. If you know you have to finish this project, it isn't the pain of doing the project, it's the pain of knowing that you have to do the project that's causing you angst. There's this piece of us that just knows that there's this unfinished business in this relationship because I sent him a text and he hasn't responded. And then I sent another one. And first you think, is he okay? Did he get into a car accident? Maybe he's in the ditch somewhere. I don't know. And then you do a little bit of online sleuthing and you see, no, we posted this picture on Facebook. So clearly he's alive and well. And then you go, well, what's wrong with me? What did I do? What did he must have discovered the absolute worst character defect, defect that I have. And, and then we start to focus it on ourselves. And the thing is, ghosting, just like disappearing off the face of the earth without a trace, is a terrible practice because the brain processes that social pain the same way it does a punch in the face. Mm -hmm. So to any of your listeners out here who are ghosts or considering becoming a ghost, ask yourself if you would punch that person in the face. If the answer is no, then don't ghost them because the brain thinks treats it the exact same way as a punch in the face. Perhaps so. that's why people describe their emotional pain. It was like a punch in the face. Yeah, or a punch in the gut. It's just fascinating. And I think when you realize that the brain can't tell the difference between social pain and, and physical pain, not just in ghosting with relationships, but when you think about how we treat others in the workplace, and we don't, I don't think anybody goes to work with the malicious intent of making someone hurt. You can make the brain work better by saying, gosh, Teresa, you're a fantastic member of this team. And I really appreciate the way you push our thinking. And I appreciate the way, you know, you make us look at, turn everything upside down and look at it from a different angle. Thanks so much for being on our team. That is going to impact your brain significantly and mine. Likewise, if I just ignore any ideas that you share with the group, if I ignore them, I don't even have to be hateful about it. I can just simply dismiss it by not acknowledging it. Mm -hmm. That is going to hurt your brain the same way physical pain is. And I think when leaders understand that that's what happens up here, and it's not intentional, but we can intentionally address it. And that's the key. Hashtag not anymore. What I'd love to kind of focus in on is cannot do continue to do any more is stay hormone light when it comes to dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin. We need to amp and jazz these things up in life in general, no matter where we are, home, work, play. Let's bring it everywhere. Now on this podcast, we love to help people to start think differently. And you provide a lot of scientific information and resources for people to go and check out so that they can start to learn more and perhaps geek out in neuroscience and how the brain works and understanding these things like neurotransmitters and hormones. In your expertise, what's one thing you would recommend our listeners start doing so they can amp up these great hormones that are so healthy for our brains? I think the single most important thing that people can do to start applying some of, you know, we were so smart about the brain. And if you really want to start applying some of this stuff is pay attention 
to what you pay attention to. If you pay attention to the negative people, places, and things in your life, then your brain is going to continue to look for the negatives. The brain loves patterns and it's going to get stuck in this vicious cycle. And you only disrupt that vicious cycle by intentionally plugging in a positive. If we focus on what it is we're paying attention to. So here's the thing. We're all going to see negative things. We, we don't live in a perfect world. We don't work with perfect people. We're not perfect people ourselves. And it doesn't help us grow to ignore the things that aren't perfect, the things that need fixing, because there are those too. So I'm not suggesting that you just put rose-colored glasses on and you go about you know, your life as the Pollyanna of the bunch. Yeah. What I am suggesting is that you pay attention to what you pay attention to. So in the morning, it, what are you paying attention to? What is your mood like? When you look ahead to your day, are you dreading that meeting with that team, with that project, whatever it is? Or are you looking for ways that you can find the good in somebody on that team or find the solution to that problem or whatever it is. The key is to just, so much of our thought process happen and it just like fleets. Mm. So take a minute in the morning and pay attention to what you're looking forward to. And then at the end of the day, take a minute and look back at your day and pay attention to what you paid attention to. Like what things really jumped out and grabbed you? Was it Good things, were, were they good people doing good things that you really noticed? Or when you look back on your day, do you see 10 negative things? And if you see 10 negative things and you're stuck in the vicious cycle, it's time for you to pay attention to something else. So I, I think bookending your day with kind of an intentional, introspective look at yourself, at your thought processes can be so incredibly powerful. And then if you want to take it one step further and be like the uh, A plus super achiever in the class, you can use a gratitude journal and do that. <laughs> you can incorporate that with the, with the concept of gratitude because that keeps your brain in this positive space. And why not give yourself a shot of dopamine by creating some sort of reward around, look, I washed myself like a hawk today and I book ended. How did I think about it in the morning? How did I think about it? And I, I tracked 10. So my goal tomorrow is nine. And the day after that is eight. eight. And the day after that yeah. is seven. And all of a sudden I get boom, boom. It's a <laughs> wonderful hormone that's making me feel great about myself because now I'm shifting and I'm disrupting that pattern. And all of a sudden I am not just thinking differently. I'm doing differently because I was thinking differently. That is fantastic. Melissa, how can people get in touch with you? They can find me at my website at melissahughes.rocks. And also I do a video nugget every Friday. Amazing. And if people want to catch you at your TED Talk experience, tell us about that again. When, where? That is March 26th at Wabash College. I'm very excited. I will definitely be pushing that out there. Amazing. Last one. When is this free ebook dropping? Monday. If not before, it is, it has been, um, I keep, here's the problem. I, every, I, every time I think I'm done and I put the period in and I go, no, 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 I want to add this one more thing. Cause this is just gold. I want to add this thing. So I keep doing that. And, and so now it's in the final editing process. So I'm going to say Monday. 
Oh, congratulations. That's very exciting. Thank you so much for sharing wisdom, experience, great stories, hard, concrete things that people can start doing differently. Thank you for having me. I always appreciate the chance to get geeky and uh, this has been, this has been a great conversation. So thank you. I'll just echo that. It's been a really interesting and good opportunity to explore some of the sort of theories and things. I will do a round two and just go even deeper into it. That sounds great. Our version of geeking out on TNT ESQ is figuring out how people answer the rapid fire Q&A. 10 statements, two choices, interpret as suits you best. Are you ready? Uh, ready, I am, yes. <laughs> Number one, manager or leader? Oh, leader. Active or reactive? Active. Black and white or gray? Definitely gray. Actually, yellows, oranges, and reds. <laughs> Optimist or realist? I'm a realist. Canada or England? Mm, I just go with England because my better half is from England. So I gotta, I gotta do England or he'll be mad at me. One for England. <laughs> heart or head? Heart, 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 heart. Empathy or assertiveness? Assertive fee. <laughs> Trying to combine those two. I think that is the first. Yeah. Empathy. Empathy. Introvert or extrovert? Introverted extrovert. Logical or emotional? Oh, I'm emotional. I'm a Pisces. Very emotional. Innovation or process? Mm, innovation. You made it through. Congratulations. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs>We love to hear all of your feedback here on TNT ESQ. So if you've enjoyed this show, you've learned something, you've been inspired, please share it with your friends. Please rate the show. Please write a review on whichever podcast uh, platform you enjoyed it on to help us spread the word, help more people think differently and more people start doing differently. Thank you.